0: Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Rick?
1: I'm doing great, Sarah. Yourself?
0: don't lie. Are you really doing great?
1: I'm doing pretty good this week. Last week was uh, a little crazy, but I was fortunate enough to be away during the craziness. So it wasn't terrible for me, but still was uh, a, a worse week than what this week is starting out so far.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think um, everyone, if, if they're in healthcare right now, I think it's safe to say that they are a little bit stressed out.
1: I think that's fair. I think that's fair. We're in the The myths locally of our Omicron surge. And hopefully we start to see some some abatement of it in the next couple of weeks. But uh, yeah, we'll see where it goes.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk about something a little bit more lighthearted. And we should introduce our guest for today.
1: Yeah, sounds great to me. Uh, We're glad to have him back. He was uh, on one of our special podcast just last week.
0: Yeah so today we have on Richard Estep who is a paramedic and a clinical educator from the Denver area. Welcome to the show Richard.
2: Hi Sarah Richard and thanks for inviting me back. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah thanks for being here. Definitely glad to have you. Go
1: ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself real quick if you
0: can.
2: Yeah sure. So I've been in EMS since 2001 Uh, and uh, came up from EMT through paramedic. Um, For the last few years, I was working as a clinical chief uh, for an ambulance company and recently took a position as a uh, EMS coordinator for a hospital system, uh, but still kept my status as a street medic. So now my time is uh, primarily taught educating and uh, doing street shifts as well on a weekly basis just to keep my hand in.
1: Well, there's a lot of stuff to unpack in there that I don't think uh, I know completely what it all means. So, terrific.
2: Yeah, me neither sometimes, and I live this life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so um, I guess I've known you for quite some time now, and um, I've always been really interested about the infection control aspect of what you do. Like, I know you're put into some, um, some emergency situations, and the just the infection control part of it has to be a challenge in that position.
2: It is, and it's interesting. I mean, I've taught EMTs and paramedics for um, for most of my career as well. And there's a joke that when we are training them to the National Registry of EMT standard, there are ubiquitous skill sheets to check off on, as there are in every profession, you know? And the first two lines are, BSI seems safe. And we, <laughs> we drill this into our new EMT students so much that we have literally had them on clinical rides jump out of the back of an ambulance and go bsi seems safe <laughs> they say this in their sleep and I, i'm certainly guilty of this and i think every ems provider would agree with me and probably every clinician we don't always give the thought to to body substance isolation which is what bsi stands for to ppe selection as we perhaps ought to um, And certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, when gowns and PPE was in such short supply, we really did have to give significant thought to the best way to uh, protect ourselves. And so uh, I think that over the past couple of years, I've never been more acutely aware of infection control. Because to be brutally honest, it was all, and this is probably blasphemy and heresy for the pair of you, but it was always one of those things. We took a mandatory annual hourly class in, got checked off on and went about our business. You know, I wear my goggles, I wear my gloves. If it's a bloody trauma scene or an OB scene, I might put on a gown, you know. Um, but there was this uh, stupid, it was absolutely stupid kind of mentality when I first got into the emergency services, that kind of the more rough, you know, dirtier you looked, the kind of more badass you were. Um, I was a firefighter, a volunteer firefighter for 15 years. And when I began, there was this concept that, you know, it was cool to have bunker gear that was streaked in soot because then you look like you'd seen stuff, you know. Um, and the truth is that's carcinogenic. And we learned this because the cancer rates in firefighters were higher, way higher than they should have been. And so we got away successfully from having dirty protective gear as a badge of honor to seeing it as a danger. Um, And I think that we've certainly seen that as well when it comes to um, infection control in EMS, thankfully.
1: yeah. talking a little bit about that, so um, EMS in, let's say, February, March 2020, um, when you didn't have the supplies, we didn't really know what to tell you guys to really protect yourself. So... How was well, how that? You still had to answer calls in the field. There were still sick people, whether they had COVID or not COVID, mm-hmm. you didn't know. So um, how did you guys cope with that?
2: It's interesting. The very, I, will, I remember the very first COVID call we had uh, that was confirmed COVID through our dispatch. One of my EMS crews ran it and the duty captain and I heard it on the radio. It was a novelty back then. And so we jumped in a second ambulance and we took um, a whole bunch of Tyvek and while the paramedic was in the house treating the patient, we jumped into the back of the rig and we put Tyvek over the cabinets and stuff like that. Yeah, that lasted about six weeks um, before the reality of it hit us. You know, it turns out it wasn't really doing us any favors anyway. Um, but yeah, the, the, the guidelines seem to primarily focus on N95s and of course, the great debate was how can you reuse this? Uh, How often can you reuse this? How long can you keep this on your face? How should you store it between shifts? Um, I I would love to give a big shout out to Burger King in Boulder, Colorado, because when the idea came out, this came to us from the East Coast who got hit, of course, much harder, much earlier than Colorado did. um, I'd heard that providers were putting their N95s in essentially brown paper bags sandwich bags fast food bags because they had that right mixture of porousness but containment uh, and they were leaving them there between shifts so i called uh let's just call them another fast food chain first who said no you can't have any bags i called burger king and they didn't ask for any money they gave me a thousand of their uh, takeout bags uh, which we we used for most of uh, 2020 so you know, but of course the, the, the guidance changes as the data changes. And of course, as the the disease itself
0: changes. When you were in the midst of the, you know, the respirator shortage, Mm -hmm. you guys were actively, uh, reusing respirators then.
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, they were like gold as you'll remember. And so you couldn't just pitch them. We weren't at a point where there was, uh, any way to decontaminate them, there were no options for that in the early stages. So I think though the earliest uh, shortage was gowns, um, if I recall correctly, and that's what I heard from my colleagues in the hospital setting as well, um, because there's no real way to use a gown. Once it's on, you're kind of tearing it off, we all know this, uh, and getting rid of it. So we'd, we'd explored possibilities of could you reuse them and nobody could really come up with a good way to do it, so
0: yeah, I think that's good practice. Yeah. I mean, and I,
1: I I could see reuse or extended use, at least in a hospital facility where you're in the same like hallway or Mm -hmm. unit or something like that, but using it in between different calls and different houses and everything else, that would seem like that would be extremely difficult, especially if you have traumas or, or having to secure an airway or an IV line in the field where you don't have Mm -hmm. quite the same surroundings as you do in a hospital.
2: Well, and to just make it a little more complex as well, as part of an EMS crew, you have a concern about contaminating your pass, excuse me, your driving compartment of the ambulance too. You work as a two person team with many systems, a fire company as well to assist. Um, The problem is we were staging a lot of the time our fire companies to reduce their exposure. Uh, and as things began, we actually would send an EMT or a paramedic in alone just from a safety point of view. That's concerning because you never know what you're walking into, but we would send in a, an EMT or a medic alone to assess the patient and then determine, you know, uh, I think I can walk them to the pram outside the, the residence or the building. I think I need, um, an engine company to come in and help me move this patient because, uh, they are, let's say, obese or have reduced mobility or whatever. You make that determination. But then the problem is, how do, you, how do you not contaminate the individual who's going to drive you to the hospital? It's much easier when you have multiple hands and you can have a dedicated driver that is not involved with patient care, but staffing doesn't always allow that. So uh, I did hear of instances of certain agencies that had Tyvek suits, protective Tyvek suits, the, uh, for reuse and decontamination. Um, I don't know how effective those were, but I'd heard of a few cases in which there was suspected cross-contamination that the suit was worn into the scene, uh, deconned as best as possible outside the scene. That person drove to the hospital and ended up contaminating the cab with the ambulance with COVID anyway, despite the fact that you're trying to, you know, control your airflow, uh, and all of the other measures that we took to try and create a, a positive pressure environment. So we were kind of learning as we went along.
0: Yeah. It's like everything else. I've heard a yeah. lot of our medical directors say we're trying to build the plane while we're in the air with this. So I think that's
2: a fair comment. Yeah, it's absolutely yeah. fair comment. And, and I will say that um, it's a testament to the magnificent kind of ingenuity and get it done approach that um, – I'm very proud of everyone that works in medicine right now. If you're involved in this field in any way, shape or form, or you are the spouse or a supporter of someone that does this, um, my hat goes off to you because, you know, you are making history as we go along. And making history is pretty much always painful. But EMS has always been known um, for its get it done no matter what kind of mentality, you know, whether it's creative splinting halfway up a mountainside or getting somebody down from a hundred feet in the air, who's had an MI or whatever it is. And that, uh, that creativity has really come to the forefront, uh, in the past two
1: years. Yeah, I'm sure. Now, um, uh, tell us where are you from? Uh, originally I'm from back East, um,
2: the United Kingdom way back East.
1: So you grew up there and went to uh, whatever you guys call grade school. Um, do you yeah. call it high school or what do you guys call?
2: Yeah, well, I call it Hogwarts without the magic. Um, <laughs> because that's basically what it looked like. You know, We had the same kind of houses and school uniforms as you would see in those movies. But yeah, I went to school there, primary and secondary school. And I came to the U.S. in uh, 1999. And you guys still haven't thrown me out yet, which is really nice. So uh, I spent my formative years across the pond. And uh, when there's not a pandemic on, I kind of like to split my time between the two countries, but I haven't been home in a a minute.
1: So coming over to the U.S. after you graduated from secondary school, did you have to do any other schooling here or did you just go right into your firefighter role or whatever you did first?
2: Actually, I worked in IT and I had no desire initially at all um, to be part of the emergency services. And so I was looking at something like the National Guard, the Army Reserve, and then 9-11 happened. And I, I thought that uh, I, there was a better way I could serve my community a more immediate way. So I went to my nearest um, firehouse and asked for a volunteers application uh, and started my journey there. They, uh, they put me through EMT school at a local community college. And uh, I, I realized then how much fire the fire service actually didn't do. And what I mean is, it's certainly no disrespect. You can see the helmets behind me from, from, uh, from my time. I loved my time as a firefighter, but I would say 75 to 80% of what most engine companies do is emergency medicine. Um, it's almost an all-hazards job or career these days. Uh, and, and medicine is a huge part of it. So I thought, well, I, I better be really good at this or as good as I can be, which led to me uh, going to paramedic school and pursuing a degree in paramedicine. And that led me down the teaching path, which I'm still on today.
1: Awesome. What does paramedic school look like? What, uh, uh, you know, what do you, uh, I assume it's a lot of similar stuff that we learn in, in like medical school or nursing school or something like that. But you also have, uh, as you said, different hazards that you have to face that us working in a facility don't.
2: Absolutely. Paramedics are generalists. Uh, as ED physicians are, you have to, you're an expert in no one thing. But you have to know enough about everything to keep your patient alive so that you can get them to the people uh, who can offer definitive care. So um, the paramedic school, depending on where you go, is six to 10 months of um, high intensity training in all aspects of pre-hospital medicine. Very heavy on pharmacology and cardiology, as you would expect. Um, Certainly heavy on respiratory and pulmonary emergencies, but we cover things as diverse as uh, obstetrics and OB emergencies, uh, a great deal of trauma. And uh, it's done in a fairly, I would say, high stress environment, much like medical school is, I I would imagine you're drinking from a fire hose and constantly trying to survive that next test um the one criticism i have of the way we train paramedics in the west i don't know how it is elsewhere in the world but um we seem to have this this mentality of of passing the next test how do i survive the next test how do i stay in the program and it's really only after you graduate you have the luxury of exploring some of these subjects in more depth for for understanding is that was that your experience with your medical training richard
1: yeah, so medical training is a lot like that. We, uh, we actually have a lot of training that we do after medical school, obviously, mm-hmm. where I think you get to go into um, the, you know, in the depth that you're talking about and the practical aspects of the things that you've tried to learn over the preceding four years. We don't have, you know, 10 months of training either. So, um, but yeah, you, it's a constant learning and a constant, you go back and think, about the things that you learned when you were in school and when you're in training. And it's like, sometimes the light bulb comes on and it clicks. And you're like, Oh, this is what they were talking about that I hadn't had time to figure out and and see how to apply it because you're right. You're trying to pass the next test and then move on to the next subject. And at the end of the day, uh, it's not always uh, easy to figure out what they were trying to tell you.
2: Yeah. And I think the paramedics, um, The the best way I've heard this put is that a paramedic is really training, training, training for the moment when they are alone in the back of an ambulance with a critically ill patient and you are the only thing between them and death's door, which I would say is 5 to 10% of the calls we run. 90% of the calls that EMS runs are not acute life-threatening emergencies. I know that TV would have us believe otherwise, um, but this is true. Those are the 90%, though, are extremely important. So interfacility transports, we have the privilege and the honor of taking people to and from hospice. Um, I've been very moved taking people on the last ride they'll ever take to die at home or to die in a facility. I had one lady I'll never forget, we spent 15 minutes parked in a dark spot halfway between the hospital and her home because she hadn't seen the stars in several weeks and and there was a real chance she would never see a night sky again. So, you know, it may not be entirely glamorous, but you get those moments too. But I think the majority of our training, 90% of the training is for 10% of the calls that we will actually run. And of course, medicine is unforgiving in that it, it is one of those professions that administers the test first and the lesson afterwards.
0: Yeah. I think that's probably true of any training in any medical field is, you know, you're trying to survive to the next test, mm-hmm. but you will never, you'll never learn until you get your hands dirty and get that experience.
2: Absolutely true. And, you know, the, there's that old saying that, um, doctors bury their mistakes. Um, I, I think it's, It's one of those careers where if you choose it, it's tremendously fulfilling and rewarding, but it certainly enacts a toll on you over the the long run.
0: agree. What advice would you have for somebody that is just starting out and they're thinking about maybe going into medicine?
2: Oh, have you considered PA school or med school? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I actually am kind of jealous of the PAs, um, and I mean that in a good way. Uh, I know that... uh, when I was in the Territorial Army and I've talked to a number of people that say this, they say that the best rank you can have in the, in the military is major because you are not so high up the food chain that you can't affect things directly and you are not so low down that all you're doing is in the weeds. And I think that positions like PA and paramedic um, are in that kind of interim realm, uh, that, that sweet spot where you can do some very satisfying uh, clinical care um without rising too far up that ladder you know uh, I know a number of docs Richard I don't know if you do but they have this opinion that they're like you know maybe I wouldn't choose med school if I was doing it over again maybe I would have chosen something um where I'm not charting as much as I am, where I am more hands-on what do you think
1: yeah I think there are people that are like that I I uh, certainly doing medicine is or being a physician in medicine, excuse me, is not just caring for the patients. Um, There's so much other stuff that goes into it that you have to do that you feel like the least part of your job is what your time with the patients. But that's certainly the most rewarding and what you wanted to do. So I, I think you're you're not far off with that.
2: Some of the genius that I've seen from American physicians, and this is a crying shame, but some of the the genius that I've seen is their ability to negotiate an arcane and borderline medieval billing process um, in order to get things done. I don't know how much education they give you in that uh, med school, but it is absolutely critical. And it's a skill I think physicians in most other countries aren't burdened with.
1: Yeah, there's not a lot of education and billing um, and all of the other uh, stuff that you have to do. I mean, you learn, you know, physiology, anatomy, uh, you know, all of that stuff. And then you do your clinical rotations when you're a student. And when you're a student, you're pretty much talking to the patient and then writing a note. That's essentially what you're doing. Um, it's, and then even when you're an re- intern resident, you're not so much involved in the billing and the behind the scenes aspect of that. Once you finish that, then you get a whole new learning curve of all the other things that you've been sheltered from for the last bit of time, like billing and meetings mm-hmm. and everything else that you have to do, uh, you know, recertifying and <laughs> and getting CME and all this other stuff that um, certainly isn't part of most of your education all along. It's just kind of Rolls along, uh, but uh, definitely, uh, I think, turns some people off.
2: Well, I've been fortunate to work with some phenomenal physicians here in the US, and I'm just in awe of how they make it look so seamless and effortless. Um, because the truth is, like in any other field, we all complain upwards, or we're supposed to. Physicians really don't have many people above them to complain up to. So
1: we still complain a lot, though.
2: <laughs> I think it's 100% merited, especially in the past couple of years.
0: I've always got an open ear if you need someone to complain to, Rick. <laughs> oh,
1: it's all good. It's all good. I try not to complain too much. So um, you said you're heavily involved in education now. Mm-hmm. So where are you doing that? And, and what uh, is an EM, uh, emergency medicine pair? Uh, type medicine or what, what are you doing?
2: Yeah, so as a clinical coordinator, which is a spot that I just got in October, um, it means that I teach continuing education to EMS agencies throughout uh, the Denver metro area and, and a little further afield than that. Um, but before that, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to teach in the paramedic academy that I graduated from my alma mater, uh, St. Anthony's uh, Paramedic Academy. And uh, I taught EMTs also at uh, a community college here in in my adopted home city of Longmont at Front Range Community College. And um, I like teaching CEs. I also love though teaching those that are new to the profession because they come in with this just joy and enthusiasm. that the, the field hasn't beaten them down yet. So I do really enjoy that. And one thing that I loved is I saw a number of people come in the door that were making a midlife change that they decide, and I was one of them, you know, I worked in IT. And then I decided, you know what, I I may get well paid for making computers talk to one another, um, but do I really want to lay on my deathbed and say that's what I did with my life? No disrespect to to my fellow IT uh, people, but I did years of it and I had enough and I wanted to do something that I felt would be a little more meaningful. And boy, the drop in pay reminds you when you get into EMS that uh, <laughs> you better find meaning there because it's not going to be in your paycheck. And, and it's a field nobody really gets into to get wealthy because you're not gonna, you know, uh, and it's been a real, real delight to help ignite and continue that passion that people develop to take care of their fellow human beings. And of course, now it's a challenging time because retention is an issue for us as a profession. We're seeing people burn out at an unprecedented rate uh, and walk away from the field. So uh, I think helping to guide uh, the next generation of of medical professionals is, is going to be crucial.
0: Yeah, definitely. So one question we ask most of our guests what is the craziest thing you've ever seen?
2: What is the craziest? That would undoubtedly be the 2020 U.S. presidential election, Sarah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Very good answer.
2: <laughs> I mean, in medicine, it's such a long list. We, we do see the strangest things. We experience the strangest things. Um, and rather than craziness. I I tend to remember the moving and and more meaningful moments, you know. Um, So I'll tell you my favorite um, EMS story, if I may. And this involves a paramedic I'm going to throw under a bus by naming him. His name is Matt Williams. And um, we always talk about what's the definition of an emergency. This is something that should be day one, hour one. And of course, you ask most people what an emergency is, especially if it involves an emergency response, and they're going to tell you it's a house burning down or a, a heart attack, a cardiac arrest, a major trauma, car crash, whatever. But we define an emergency as anything that makes somebody reach out and call 911. And yes, there are system abusers, but loneliness can be a genuine emergency. And we've seen those cases in which somebody calls 911, let's say they're recently bereaved, and they have nobody. Um, And if they don't reach out to us, then we may go back the following day, and they've taken their own life. So I remember it was Christmas Eve, um, as all good stories should begin either on Christmas Eve or a dark and stormy night. And uh, I was training as a paramedic under one of the greatest medics I've ever seen, a guy called Matt Williams. And we go to this man's house and he has what we like to call wandering chief complaint. His story never quite stays consistent from one moment to the next. You know, There is a very obscure cardiac rhythm called wandering atrial pacemaker. And we've purloined the phrase wandering chief complaint for that patient who uh, is just a little all over the map. You know, So um, I'm waiting for Matt as he talks to this man to make this kind of subtle but genius diagnosis that would be worthy of Dr. Greg house, you know, Oh, he's got this condition or syndrome. And Matt was also, as it happened, the shift supervisor and duty captain that day. So we ended up spending 45 minutes because the system was quiet near an hour. In fact, um, talking to this guy, and he ended up taking Matt into the other room of his apartment and showing him his collection of Stratocasters, which was, I guess, his thing. And then we didn't take him to the hospital and we came out and I'm like, Matt, so what does he have? What's going on? And Matt looked at me and he said, he's lonely, he's lonely. And he said, the, the guy was in tears when we left. And he said to me, thank you for listening to me because this is Christmas and I have no one. And then I watched Matt go back to our ambulance and called the supervisor for the following day. And Christmas day is one of those days where ambulance crews will get fed Christmas dinner at operations and he said, I want you to take this address down, and if when the system gets quiet tomorrow on Christmas Day, take a plate of food from operations, okay? Drive to this address, and I want you to sit with this man for an hour or two, as long as you can, and have some Christmas dinner with him, and just hang out. And to me, that was the most incredible thing, because my head was full of algorithms and diagnostics and clinical thoughts, and am I going to do this test, you know, and that test, Matt was looking at the human being. And I honestly believe he saved that man's life over Christmas. I truly do. And he didn't do it with medicine. He did it with a hand on the shoulder and a willingness to listen. And there's that whole mentality, which I've loved to see change since I got into medicine. We used to say things like, Uh, I'm bringing in a chest painer, And quite rightly, we would get slapped down by empathetic physicians who'd say, no, that's not a chest painer. That's a 66-year-old male with chest pain who is somebody's dad, brother, husband, uncle, son, whatever it is. Never let the patient become the complaint. They are a human being with a complaint. And you have to address both elements of this. So to me, that's where the heart of medicine, not just emergency medicine, but all medicine lies. And the truly skilled providers will spin both of those plates at the same time and make it look easy. That's that's the coolest thing I've ever seen, though, was Matt Williams and his Christmas Eve miracle.
1: That's a great story. I mean, and I think we talked earlier about the, the difficulties in medicine with the billing and the charting and the looking at the computer and everything else. And that's what I think a lot of people are missing these days is the time with the patient that you can actually make a difference just listening and talking.
2: Absolutely. And I know that it's a frustration I've heard many providers give voice to. Um, the idea that we have the automated environment now, we should, to write have fewer tasks um, of an administrative nature and more patient time, but it never quite seems to work out that way. In the same way that the the paperless office we've been promised for decades is always just three years in the future.
1: Yeah, one thing, um, you know, so in the last 20 years or so, there's been a big, uh, big push towards um, uh, training for like biocontainment type stuff, you know, and recognition of these things. And I'm just curious in your role in Denver, what that's like, you know, we have the Nebraska biocontainment unit here, and we've had patients come with Ebola, where colleagues of yours were dressed in your suits and you know, it's a whole stream of ambulance and police cars were bringing the people to our medical center and whatnot. Um, and there's a big response program in the city of Omaha for looking at these sorts of things. What's that like in Denver? Well, I'm
2: relatively new to the Denver system, but um, the first I saw personally of biocontainment was, was Ebola actually, when we had what we lovingly referred to as the Ebola bus which was an ambulance that was all tricked out um, with Tyvek over the cabinets and had all of the um, hazardous materials equipment that I was familiar with using from being a hazmat technician. And it never turned a wheel in uh, in the real world. I honestly don't know what that situation is like in Denver today. I'm still finding my way around the system. So I'm sorry I can't provide much insight uh, into that. Um, My suspicion would be though that right now, Everybody is being run ragged so much with uh, with COVID that we're all all just kind of holding on for the ride. Right.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, that certainly is the theme of the day.
2: Mm.
0: It's probably good that you don't know what a response like that looks like, isn't it?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's one of those specialist options that you know you don't really care until you need it. And you often don't give any thought to it until you need it. I mean, a, another good example is that um, before mass shootings became so prevalent, um, you didn't have four tourniquets on every ambulance, police car and fire truck. Now, uh, since, um, since events like the Boston Marathon, um, we have tourniquets everywhere and we have programs in place to teach the public. Uh, how to use tourniquets, you know, and programs like Stop the Bleed are starting to gain gain traction. So I think the world is changing. Um, when I first came to the US and, and went to EMT school, there were not, and I came to the country the month, I believe, after Columbine, um, back when a mass shooting was in fact an event as opposed to a regularity, depressing, you know, regularity. But back then, there were no active shooter drills in school. And this was something that, medical providers relatively rarely saw. Now, I mean, not just us, but children in school have to be prepared for this. The world is changing. And I, I had honestly believed, um, joining the services I did after 9-11, that the, the big events we would see in our careers would be um, urban terrorism, things like the next Oklahoma City bombing uh, or the, the a dirty bomb attack on a major metropolitan center. I'm not saying those aren't possible, but I think the, um, the mass harm scenario, you are guaranteed to see one if you're in, in emergency medicine for any length of time anymore.
0: Yeah, it's really sad the amount of mass events that have happened. You know, I never thought, well, my son turned 16 today. I never thought 16 years ago that they would be having lockdown drills at the mm. schools. My eight-year-old daughter came home the other day and she said we learned how to hide from a a person with a gun today and you know that's just it's really sad that our country has to come to that
2: yeah and, and the fact that when we had actual lockdowns because of covid one of the benefits was a reduction in school shootings you know that's not the kind of math we should ever have to calculate
0: yeah it's definitely frightening
2: this is the good cheer episode of Dirty Drinks, isn't
0: it? <laughs> it is.
1: <laughs> well, we can talk about all the people that you, you know, got out of their house and into the into the emergency room for their um, myocardial infarctions that were able to get to the cath lab immediately or get TPA or, or something along those lines. Uh, so I, I'm sure there's plenty of good that you are proud of throughout your whole career.
2: There are, and I think that, had that not been the case, that, you know, this career would crush you if you couldn't focus somewhat on your successes. And so you tend to remember both the, the good and the bad extremes. Um, and I would say that's that's a wonderful thing. And, and also you get to kind of know some of the repeat patients that, uh, that call you over and over again. And you get to see people that are successfully able to break an addiction habit. You know, um, people that are able to get onto a program and um, break their dependence upon drugs or alcohol Uh, and those kind of things bring you a lot of joy and satisfaction, too. And I think you have to actively look for that because it's so easy just in today's world in general to drown in the negative. Um, We see human beings on the worst day of their lives. Nobody ever called me for a good reason. You know, Um, it's that old saying that nothing good ever happens at 3 a.m which usually when we're working night shifts. So we meet people on the worst day of their lives. And, and sometimes all that you can do in our job is, is offer a human word, a word of understanding and compassion and kindness uh, and connect with people on that level. I think some of the, some of the things I'm most um, pleased about with my career, I haven't pushed a medication or delivered electricity or managed an airway. I said something to someone who was distressed and they will come back to you afterwards and, and, and sometimes say three, four years ago, you, know, um, you were on the, on the crew that responded to my grandfather's death at home. And I've never forgotten the kind words, which happened to me when I was a, a fairly young man, I was 15 or 16, um, and I found my grandfather who had died and had, had been dead overnight. Uh, I remember the police officer very distinctly, and this is more than half my lifetime ago, uh, looked like the actor Dennis Quaid. And he came over to my grandfather's house. He, had, My grandfather had dependent lividity, even I could tell when I had no medical training. And uh, like all British coppers, when there's a crisis, he put the kettle on and made some tea, which is the standard British response to any kind of um, event, good or bad. Celebrating, let's let's make some tea, you know. There's a tragedy. Let's make some tea. And all this officer did uh, while waiting for the uh, coroner to arrive is just sit and talk over a hot drink. And I've never forgotten his kindness. So
1: other than the repeat calls, what kind of follow up do you might get for your patients? You bring somebody else into the same ER, you mm. kind of check and see, Hey, did so-and-so do okay? You know, those kinds of things. So.
2: Yeah, definitely. There's, unfortunately there's, No, maybe not even unfortunately, but the type A personalities that gravitate to emergency medicine, we love to be right. So, for example, when we respond to somebody with abdominal pain and let's say it's a female of childbearing age, um, uh, I'm always assuming, all right, could be an ectopic pregnancy could be appendicitis. Those are two of the big ones that I'm concerned about. And there are all kinds of tests, as you know, you can use, you can look for roasting sign and curse sign and lift your leg while I push here and I'll tap your heel and you'll cough and I'll tell you if it's, you know. Um, But the truth is we need to recognize a hot belly and transport appropriately in time and let the docs figure it out. But you still love to know if you were right. There's that kind of competitive, do you know what I mean? Are my diagnostic skills where I want them to be? Did I catch this? I I had a patient recently where when we weren't sure if this was a stroke the patient was experiencing, it was a a fairly um, combative wake-up. And the patient was, was seen normal just a few hours before. So absolutely within the window for TPA, if appropriate. But we weren't sure if this was a stroke, a metabolic issue, some kind of encephalopathy, or a number of other issues. Now, we always go down the stroke route uh, in cases like this because we have a strong drive to time's brain, you know. And when you call a stroke alert, a stroke activation, and an early neurology involvement, you're going to miss a few. You're going to have a few false positives, but that's the way you can really make a difference in people's lives but you kind of want to be right. You know, there's that, that part of you that watched every episode of House or ER or whatever it yeah. was that just wants to know, did I pick up on the subtle thing and was my diagnosis correct? So I kind of want to know about that. We always do follow up and, and feedback on those kind of calls, but we're also interested in how the human being is doing as well. You know, do you feel better? Did we help make you feel a little bit better? Um, did they fix your problem or not?
0: That's awesome. And you're right all the time, right? <laughs>
2: um, you know what? If I'm not, it's idiopathic.
0: There we go.
1: <laughs> yeah. You need, you need Dr. House to figure out those.
2: I, I love House. I really do. Um, but he would not be working today, right? I mean, we know that one of the biggest causes of, of lawsuits is the fact that um, the the medical provider were. am I allowed to say? The word asshole <laughs> the, 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 the medical provider was an asshole they made you they made the patient feel bad house is a very very skilled and competent asshole um, and so he would have lost his license i feel very comfortable saying no matter that he is the um medical version of sherlock holmes with razor sharp deductive skills so yeah
1: made for good tv though made for
2: fantastic tv absolutely some of the obscure diagnoses
0: yeah, I have problems watching medical shows like that because I'm like, they're not, they're not wearing their PPE right. Why are they not wearing a mask or a gown or, you know, whatever's going on? And I just have to turn it off. It gives me anxiety.
2: <laughs> it's, de- it's definitely difficult. I do love the number of shows that show somebody getting injected, um, getting an IV at a 90 degree angle. I do, I do love them uh, and things of that nature. But I think it's true for any profession, right? Um, With medical shows, I've never understood why they don't just ask the set medic to come over and say, hey, we're doing an intubation scene here. Does this look right to you? Does this setup look right? There's usually a set doc or nurse or medic that they could ask, uh, and and often they don't.
0: Yeah. And maybe we could make a lot of money just being those subject matter experts for TV shows.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think honestly, they could just throw twenty bucks at the set medic and say, "Does this look right?" They yeah. could save so many howlers that way if they uh, <laughs> if they really were so inclined. But it's that whole thing about accuracy only goes
1: so far, isn't it?
0: Yes, definitely. You know, being a set is-
1: medic sounds really cool. That sounds like a interesting gig.
2: I gather it's having talked to a few. Yeah, it's you're either doing absolutely nothing and trying to stay out of the way, or you're working under extreme pressure um, in the full glare of the spotlight. Quite literally, the glare of the spotlights.
1: Um, I Sounds can like only obstetrics. What's that? Sounds like obstetrics.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I know, I know. Harrison Ford had a pretty nasty fracture filming Star Wars uh, Episode Seven. And can you imagine having to treat Han Solo on the ramp of the Millennium Falcon? What is that going to be like? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I would go to pieces.
1: I'm sure there's lots of injuries on the set that uh, I didn't even think of the fact that they would have a medic on hand, mm-hmm. but it makes complete sense.
2: Yeah, I just don't get why they don't sometimes ask them to bet um, the scene. I, re- I remember really clearly, I think the movie was Godzilla, the first one. Um that Gareth Edwards directed and there was a scene where somebody went into atrial fibrillation and died you know I'm like what that's that's some pretty bad AFib there you know yeah. do, we, do we mean Vfib? what are we talking about here um, and then of course the joys of watching Hollywood
0: CPR and things like that but
2: never let the facts get in the way of a good story right
0: it's so hard sometimes though
2: yeah it is it is I mean but entertainment I guess is the key thing
0: as long as there's a good story
2: right you can forgive a lot if the story's good and compelling
0: it's true so what are you reading right now
2: what am i reading right now the book that i just literally put down was a world war ii history on the big history buff um it's called brothers in arms by the historian james holland it's a superb history of a um, a British armored regiment from D-Day through the fall of um, Nazi Germany. So I like stuff like that. But I also have two or three fiction books on the go and, and usually one or two textbooks as well. You know, um, medicine's one of those fields where you always have to be reading something, whether it's JAMA or whatever, um, to get your CE kick on. And uh, so you, you fall behind. I mean, a great example is I'm 48. I had my, my annual physical a couple of weeks ago. And uh, my dog said, well, Richard, it's time to get you scheduled for your first colonoscopy. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm not 50 and the recommendation (laughs) is 50. I'm using that wheedling voice I've heard from so many people come my way. And she, who is better read than I am, said, no, they just changed that recommendation to 45. So let's get you scheduled. You know, you got to stay up on the literature as well. It's a good sleep. If they give me propofol, I'll agree.
1: It's a good yeah, <laughs> yeah. You don't even know what it happens. It's just like you're off, and then you wake up, and they say you're done, and you're like, okay. I had, I
2: know I had uh, general anesthesia and propofol for a surgery. Uh, oh, I had my gallbladder out, and I remember it very distinctly that I was on the table, and you know, you see all the masked faces bending over of you, of you, and I was telling my terrible dad jokes because I was a little bit nervous. And um, and then I remember being a little bit annoyed and saying to the doc, hey, you know, I'm starting to get cold, man. Can we get on with this? And he just leaned in like that. And he said, we're done. We're wheeling you out. It's like somebody took a scalpel and just excised that portion of my memory from start of the operation and afterwards with no seam in between. It was incredible.
0: That's what happens when I edit this show. I just like <laughs> clip out well, that the part. camera,
2: the camera adds 20 pounds. I want you to take at least three of them off me
1: before <laughs>
2: wherever these hidden cameras are before you go
1: publish it. Perfect. Oh, there's definitely hidden cameras
0: all over. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Remember you said that, that, that election, there's definitely hidden. Cameras. Oh, this is true. <laughs>
2: this is true. <laughs> We do live in interesting times, as the old curse says.
1: Uh, any questions that you have for us, or um, yeah, uh, number one is, and I mean it sincerely. How are you guys doing?
2: Because you know you're both you're both in this with with every other medical provider, and we do check ins, right? We do buddy check ins and say, "How are you doing?" Um, but how are you guys holding up? You hanging in there?
1: Um. Yeah, I think uh, uh, overall it's uh, certainly been difficult, um, ups and downs. I think the the last surge after you know we we had the the wonderful vaccines that were developed and uh, you know seemed to be very good at keeping people out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. So I think this last surge, the fact that we're back where we were, has been disappointing, um, considering, uh, you know, a lot of us feel that a lot of this could have been prevented if we'd had more uptake of the vaccine and, and less misinformation and disinformation. But overall, I think um, people have largely come together, at least where we are, working together, checking on each other, as you know, helping each other out, realizing that it's tough times, We've all know people that have left medicine completely because of this, and I don't think they'll be coming back, but hopefully with, um, you know, we get through this, things go well, people listen to our show, become interested in things in, in medicine and healthcare in general, and we can uh, get those uh, staff members back up and keep our morale good.
2: Well, if you ever need a friendly voice at three o'clock in the morning, do not hesitate. Call Sarah. Um, yep. she'll she'll probably answer probably she might. Um, how about you Sarah how are you doing
0: uh, overall I'm doing fairly well mm-hmm. um working from home has been quite an adjustment it's a little bit weird being the healthcare profession in my office at the house sometimes I feel like I never leave but I will quote my supervisor the lovely Kate Tyner. Who always says I woke up on the right side of the dirt today so I'm still kicking <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep I, I heard somebody say once uh somebody with a pretty terrible cough there are plenty of people in the cemetery would love my cough <laughs> so it's uh, it's all perspective I guess isn't it right it's all now?
0: perspective but it's about finding the little things right
2: absolutely absolutely
1: well, thanks for joining us today. We certainly appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. I, I
2: appreciate it too. And I love the good work you guys are doing. Um, publicizing infectious control and, and things of that nature. And a big thank you to everyone that tuned in and is listening to us ramble about this for, for the uh, duration of the show. I can only assume that you're interested in medicine. You have the kind of audience that um, keeps up to date on these issues and that makes you my kind of people. So thank you everyone who listened.
1: Well, it's definitely interesting to get uh, your in, your take and perspective on things coming from a paramedic point of view, a EMT point of view, because that's something that we haven't had. And honestly, not being an ED doctor, I assume the ED trainees take some ride alongs and do some stuff like that uh, in many of the programs. I don't think uh, I've been in an ambulance since I did kind of a hospice call back when I was a resident mm-hmm. in uh, the mid 90s. So it's been a while. Thankfully for me, personally, I haven't had to spend any time in an ambulance at this point in time, but it's definitely a, a, an interesting uh, uh, listen to hear your take on, on all of this.
2: Oh, thank you. I, I do love what doing ambulance work. I wish I could do more of it. I'm at that uh, age where one or two nights a week is about as much as my body will stand. Um, and, and it's important to know as well that full-time um, paramedics and EMTs are working hellaciously long shifts. There are people putting in 80, 90, 100 hour weeks um, because even though we shut down with COVID as you guys both know, the heart attacks and strokes keep happening. The day-to-day medical emergencies don't go on hold just because the hospital system is starting to become overwhelmed. So um, they're handling it magnificently but people can genuinely help if they remember wear a mask, get vaccinated. And like JFK said, That's not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country.
0: Ending on a little bit of history. I think that uh, Rick just developed a Jeopardy game. And I think that you should ask your final Jeopardy question to close out the show.
1: Oh yeah, so the final Jeopardy question today is, prior to the COVID pandemic, what is the deadliest month in US history? The
2: deadliest month in U.S. history. I know the deadliest single day in U.S. history. So, would it be the same month? No, because that was the Battle of Antietam.
1: Yeah, it's not. Um, it, it's not.
2: Was it part of the Spanish flu influenza, and did it take place in nineteen eighteen or nineteen? Could have been. Oh, so now it's just I'm throwing, <laughs> I threw a dart in the general direction of the board. All right, let's see. I'm going to go with. December 1918. You're pretty close. It was actually October 1918. Was that because you not only had an epidemic going on, but also World War I, the armistice wasn't in effect yet?
1: Yeah, I think it was because a combination of the two, but largely the, the um, so-called Spanish flu was uh, raging at that point in time with really pretty primitive health care at that point in time.
2: Mm. That's good to know.
1: Yeah. That's the answer to the question today. So if anybody listens to our podcast before Jeopardy tonight, they will then know the answer, but I don't think they're going to have that opportunity. So it's okay.
0: I don't think so. I will not get this edited probably until tomorrow. So So you're not going to give away
2: any trade secrets, huh?
0: That's right.
1: (laughs) All right, guys. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.
0: Yes. Thanks so much, Richard, for joining us. And thank you everyone for tuning in for another episode of Dirty Drinks. And we will catch you next time. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at Dirty Underscore Drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes we would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.